from the Mojave Desert in the late summer of 1971, shooting a truck stalking a car, to the sterile, white, 4,000 square foot empty space called The Volume, shooting video game aesthetic motion capture for an imagined online universe. Over his half-century career, Steven Spielberg was not simply along for the ride. He was the conductor, the trailblazer, the one-time wunderkind turned seasoned veteran whose legacy is closer to author of 20th century cinema than footnote. Even in his early 70s, the director continues to push the envelope. To varying degrees of success, to be sure, but the man innovates nonetheless. He's so ingrained in the pop culture of the past 40 years that when it came time to adapt a book about that same pop culture, he had to actively avoid engaging in masturbatory pseudo-metatextual references that might include nods to everything from Jaws to Jurassic Park. Even then, at front and center of the resulting film is the DeLorean from Back to the Future, a film he produced and certainly couldn't ignore. Whatever the case, he's ready to look backward to the 1980s to move forward to the future ready to go uh, back to the future. Oh, fuck it. Let's log into the Oasis. This is Ready Player One. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. They stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello. If you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the Oasis itself. Welcome to episode 32 of Lights to Low, the filmography podcast in which we painstakingly deconstruct each and every film of some of our favorite directors. We have been going through the works of Steven Spielberg, and we are on his final film. Well, at least his most current film, Ready Player One. I am your host, Carter Ringle, along here with my co-host, Jacob Willinger. Jacob, say hi to the good people. How's it going? Final episode, Carter. Indeed. Final movie, I should say, so... <laughs> yeah, Jacob, Ready Ready Player One. What's your relationship with this movie? And give us your initial thoughts. I saw this in theaters a few years back, so this will be my second watch. Before I watched it uh, the first time, I was prepared to hate it, honestly. But I actually ended up liking it, um, which I mostly credit to Spielberg's craft. I think it does suffer a bit from what I'm going to call for myself Interstellar syndrome which is when I saw Interstellar in theaters. It came out of the theater like I had a, you know, existential moment, otherworldly experience, and then I rewatched it again, you know, months later, and I was like, "Oh, well, it's 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 pretty good, but it's not like this, uh, you know, great and crazy thing I thought it was." And um, I have a similar feeling to that uh, that I got with this movie, you know, rewatching it on a smaller screen, not in the theater, which is fine. So in that regard, I do like it, just not quite as much. As, as I probably initially did. Uh, I do think the 
core romance slash relationship uh, of the film is is flimsy. Um, I think the film overall is a bit much, but to its credit, um, I don't think people uh, recognize that this movie is probably more critical of a lot of the things they hate um, than they think. And I think a lot of people were determined to hate this movie uh, before they even saw it. I don't think it's just 80s porn. I think the film is its own thing beyond those references. Um, And I think Spielberg comes away once again with a a very humanist theme here, uh, if not a bit misguided and just lost in the spectacle. So let's get into it. I also saw this in theaters. This is probably my third or fourth watch. I do own it, so I've I've seen it a couple of times since uh, the movie theater. And I, I still like it quite a bit. Uh, I was somewhat high on it, probably about as high as you on the initial watch, uh, though I wasn't quite as high on Interstellar as you because I'm right about things like that. But at any <laughs> I rate, I think that it, <laughs> I think that it is a, I think that it's a good film. And even when we grade on a Spielberg curve, we have kind of two different options. Some people think, oh, it's Spielberg, he gets a pass. But I think more often than not, people are looking to compare his current films to his classics, which I think can be unfair at times. And if we look at this as an isolated film, yes, based on a book that has its haters, I think that this film delivers. It's fun. Yes, you get all those 80s pop culture references, but you're allowed to like things. We've talked about this in the past. I happen to like these pop culture references because I like the things that they're referencing, and it does not have to be a perfect film for it to work for me. Jacob, this movie then does begin in the future, 2045, in the city that we know everyone will move to, Columbus, (laughs) Ohio. (laughs) And we're actually going to start in the stacks here. Jacob, the first thing I'm going to do is um, charge you with describing the stacks for us. And if if you would, uh, how would you describe the people who live there? How would I describe the people who live there? Uh... Midwestern blue-collar workers. <laughs> it was meant to be a trap, Jacob. Um, <laughs> we've talked about this in the past, and I was hoping you'd, you'd kind of think of this in the same vein that we had the discussion of that crowd in AI, if you know what I'm getting uh, at. And the term that would come to mind, of course, is the stacks is essentially a vertical trailer park. And this is Spielberg once again, granted this is in the book, um, putting what might generally be dubbed white trash in his film, right? A lot of the people who live here are going to be on the lower end of the economic spectrum. Um, Our protagonist is going to live with his aunt and her boyfriend, and they're not exactly going to come across as blue-collar workers so much as people who are obsessed with the Oasis and, you know, spending money willfully on trying to get fictional currency, perhaps. Jacob, is this an unfair assessment of these people, or do you think that there is a comment uh, specifically here? How is Spielberg commenting on the stacks as well as the people who live there, sort of within the context of a, of a movie in which I think we do have like a lot of class warfare uh, taking place? Uh, I'm going to take the completely opposite assessment you had there. In AI, Spielberg very critical of that group of people. In Ready Player One, I don't think he's critical of these people almost at all. I, I mean, that said, I mean, you know, you talked about his aunt's boyfriend. That, I think, is dealt with poorly. We'll get to that when we get there. But I think these are people who are clearly being taken advantage of uh, by capitalism, by corporations. I think that's a major theme in this movie. Um, I don't think he is critical of them. 
Um, I think he's critical of everyone's, ultimately going to be critical of everyone's like decision to escape to some degree. But I think he does a good job of setting the tone. Is like, yeah, you know what? I I would want to escape this harsh reality too. Like this place sucks. Life sucks to to no fault of these people. Um, so I don't think he's being critical of them at all. I would I would be hard pressed to call them white trash. Even I think they're just poor. That's a fair point. I don't think I was getting at the fact that he was necessarily being you know, critical of these people. I wanted to hear what you had to say about it. But I do think that that is going to be a theme of this film as it was in the book. Um, And in this case, we get, you know, a very kind of rich filmmaker telling a story, um, as you noted, in which the downtrodden are going to be uh, the victims of this capitalistic circumstance. Is Spielberg really... Uh, equipped to tell this story, can can we take this from him and say, "Oh, look at that Spielberg! He's on uh, he's on the side of the little guy," or should we take some of that with a grain of salt? I think that's a that's a great question for this movie at, at large because I think part of this movie is going to be Spielberg dealing with his career in a lot of ways, his creations, what he's done for film, especially technology wise money wise (laughs) and so it does come across a a bit weird in this movie that costs so much money to make for Spielberg to be like yeah the little guys Uh, especially after our discussion about the post where the heroes you know were were rich people and we we obviously had our differences there when it came to that it does feel a bit strange but it also feels kind of good for Spielberg to be what I would call back at home because he's always kind of been for the little guys all the way back to something like Sugarland Express so um, not not sure it lands entirely, and that's where I want to say some of this movie is probably misguided, but uh, I, I think it, it works to some degree at least. Yeah, to be fair to the Post, I mean, if the rich people, I guess, were positioned as the little guys against the big bad government in that one. Uh, in this one, I think an interesting discussion will be uh, who the Spielberg proxy is, because we naturally want to believe that it is going to be our protagonist who we meet here at the beginning, Wade Watts, but there's going to be a white male who is the head of a major corporation by the name of Nolan Sorrento and there's going to be a white male the head of a major corporation by the name of James Holiday and I don't think that either one is a perfect one-to-one representation of Spielberg but maybe in a bifurcated way kind of represents two aspects of that man but let's start with Wade Watts Jacob he has this very superhero-y name and he tells us that that is on purpose his parents named him that like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner and he lives in these stacks in Columbus Ohio and we open on shots of him being I guess kind of athletic in real life uh, scaling and descending from the stacks even though in the book he's supposed to be kind of an overweight uh, high schooler Jacob, what is your initial thought on the production design and the introduction of Wade Watts here? And then go ahead and take us into what the hell this movie is about. Production design, pretty good. Um, I was thinking how much we were talking about minority reports, like production design and environment, how that feels like a world where you're constantly being watched, constant big brother, feels lived in, feels like everyone is tense. I don't quite get that here. I think the real world is a little smaller feeling than it should be. I mean, the focus is obviously the Oasis. Um, so it's it's pretty good. It's not the best that I've seen from Spielberg. But as far as uh, what this movie is about, we're going to get a lot of exposition up front here from Wade's voiceover. And he tells us he was born after the corn syrup droughts and the bandwidth riots. So uh, strap in because this movie is not going to be subtle whatsoever. 
talks about how people are just trying to, you know, not trying to fix problems anymore, just outlive them. Everyone's looking for a way to escape. And we're going to see him go into his, his hiding place inside this kind of junkyard and this van and log into the Oasis. And then he kind of explains what the Oasis is with all these scenes of people playing different games and doing different things. And we get in- introduced to Wade's avatar, uh, Parzival. I'm just going to call him Wade for this whole movie, regardless if he's in, in the Oasis or not. But So, Carter, after this introduction to the Oasis, like, what, do you, what are your thoughts so far? Do you think we are supposed to like, have a positive view of the, of the Oasis so far? Or from the start, are, you th- are we supposed to think like, oh, man... I don't know about this. Seems kind of seems kind of much. What do you think? I think that it's something to think about because when we view this film through the lens of class, the Oasis can be a very democratizing form of technology, as James Holiday, I think, would would argue that it is because it does give people the ability to live these extraordinary lives. It allows them to go surfing and snowboarding, to go to these casinos, things that they wouldn't normally be able to do, but even those who live in the stacks have the opportunity to do that as long as you can, you know, afford the hardware, I suppose. Uh, The other thing would be, uh, of course, the Oasis is going to be used for sex, always sex, sex all the time, (laughs) which is alluded to a couple of times in this film. But much like the internet, um, it will be used for good and for ill. And of course, the Oasis can serve as a proxy for the internet, for social media in particular. Um, And as a result, there is going to be a lot of evil that can breed from that. Uh, The evil in this film will uh, be personified by a separate corporation than James Halliday's. So I think that because we have that other corporation, IOI, as opposed to um, the Oasis, which was created by Gregarious Games, uh, we are, you know, we have that, like, okay, Gregarious Games, Oasis, it's, it's meant to be good or at least neutral, right? Silicon Valley is all about technology is neutral. Like, that's what you hear from, like, Zuckerberg and the Twitter guys all the time. But I think IOI is definitely representative of that corporate greed, the selling of ads and, and that side of it. So I think Spielberg is, you know, kind of falling somewhere in the middle here. It's, it's a cautionary tale of, of what could happen. Uh, and we should be at the very least aware of that. Well said, well said. I mean, that's going to be the, the major theme for the movie, right? It's just that don't spend too much time on them damn video games, you know? Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think it, it's a good job because I think Spielberg is going to be a little self-critical in this movie, which is good. And that prevents it from being too much of like old man yells at cloud Spielberg or like, you know, old man hates Netflix <laughs> Spielberg even. So, but <laughs> yeah. As we get moving, we will get introduced to Wade's best friend, H, uh, who's this this big avatar, muscular, cool-looking, and we got we got these cool combat scenes with them, and they're talking about how big of a deal it is to die in the Oasis because it costs you everything that you worked for, and as he explained this, we're actually going to see a guy who like dies in the game like try to c- kill himself in real life uh, because he lost in the game. So once again, not subtle, but I think it does a good job of showing like how invested people are in this game. Um, and he's, then he's going to start talking about um, James Halliday and Ogden Morrow. So, Carter, why don't you tell us about those two? Sure. James Halliday and Ogden Morrow think like a Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak. James Halliday and Ogden Morrow are going to be partners who create Gregarious Games, the corporation that does uh, invent the Oasis. Halliday is definitely the more famous of the two. He is the Jobs, but also the guy behind it we're meant to believe here. Morrow, in this case, might actually be more of the business guy. Jacob, did you quite get what their relationship was in in this film? 
when it comes to who did what. Yeah, I mean, clearly, like, Halliday is the one who, like, did all the actual, like, hardware work, design work, and Morrow seems like the businessman. So I think in that case, it would make, like, Halliday, Wozniak, and Morrow jobs. Right, but Halliday clearly is the more famous of the two, right? At least to, like, the Gunters, at least. So, in in the same way that I think Woz has kind of a, a, a cult following, I think it's similar uh, for Halliday. So. Sure. I suppose the jobs will come out in Halliday when he ends up kicking Morrow out of the company and, and taking it for himself. But regardless, we find out that Holiday, um died five years ago in 2040. We get a shot of his funeral. He rises from the grave. Oh, it wasn't his funeral. It was just a video he recorded prior to it. Uh, there are flowers arranged in uh, the, the form of the Star Trek insignia because nerd. <laughs> and he explains that um, he is dead now. And he recorded this before he died. Jacob, he has hidden an Easter egg within the Oasis. And the first person to find this Easter egg will inherit his entire stock in Gregarious Games, which is worth upwards of half a trillion dollars. And they will also gain total control of the Oasis. En route to finding this Easter egg... He tells them there will be three keys and three hidden challenges, and he will actually be there in the form of his avatar, Anorak the All-Knowing. So what we're going to get is a race to the Easter egg, and for the next five years, nobody finds shit except for the first challenge. But the hunt begins. Wade is going to be a gunter. You referred to this term earlier. That is a shortened version of egg hunter. Jacob, in addition to the Gunters, we're also going to get those employees of IOI who are essentially hired mercenaries to go out and find the keys and find the egg on behalf of this corporation. They will be known as Sixers because each of their employee code starts with the number six. But in five years, no keys have been obtained, but they have found that first challenge. Jacob, why don't you take us in to... This first challenge is apparently it's just happening all the time as people try to crack the code. Yes, it's going to be a race. Wade is going to jump in to the race. He's going to meet up with H. They're going to talk. He doesn't have a lot of gas. He's going to have to kind of get some gas as he goes through the race. But Wade's going to spawn his car, and it is a DeLorean. So we have the uh, first of two major Zemeckis references here. Um, should probably note, you know, straight up, uh, Spielberg was very intentional about not including a lot of his own stuff in this movie. Uh, since it is, you know, 80s pop culture and he had a lot to do with 80s pop culture, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be uh, t- too self-congratulatory. So uh, we will get uh, one of his uh, major creatures here shortly, though. But uh, the track assembles and the race begins. H is driving his monster truck up front, and Wade is going to be kind of competing with this other player on a motorcycle. This player is going to be Artemis. Um, she's played by Olivia Cook. She's kind of a legendary player uh, in the game. Should note uh, that Wade is played by Ty Sheridan. Uh, the, the CEO of IOI is going to be Ben Mendelsohn. Halliday is Mark Rylance. Morrow is Simon Pegg. So uh, a lot of uh, name actors here. A lot of pretty good performances, I think. I really don't have an issue with too many of these performances. I think both of the leads do a pretty fine job. But let's go ahead and get into this race. First to the key. First to the egg.
Bridge, are you seeing this? Yeah, I see it. That's Kaneda's bike from Akira. It's a licensed skin over standard frame. No, not the bike. Forget the bike. The girl. I think it's Artemis. Be Artemis? The sixer fixer? I've seen all her walkthroughs, her Twitch streams. It's her. It's definitely her. So we have this, I think, a fantastic sequence. Um, I don't think it's too long. I don't think it's too short. I think he kind of nails the time on that. And it's people trying to race to the finish line. And there's wrecking balls coming in and hitting people. You've got the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. And you've got King Kong at the end. Um, Artemis is going to try to come up at the end and and ramp to the finish line. But Wade's going to like basically tackle her off her motorcycle so she doesn't die. So... Quick rundown of a, a very crazy action scene. Carter, what do you think about this race? Yeah, I think it's really well done. King Kong serves as the the big bad guy here. That's who Wade is going to save Artemis from. There's a lot of 80s pop cultural references. You mentioned the Jurassic Park reference with the T-Rex. There's a big tanker truck here, Jacob, but it's not the one from Duel, right? I didn't even notice. There's like too many to even keep track of. It should have been if, if, it, if it wasn't, but at any rate... Uh, it's exciting, and it, it's clear that they nobody knows how to fucking win this race. And that's going to, of course, be the challenge here, that it's not just a race. There's going to have uh, to be something else to it. Jacob, Artemis does destroy her bike when King Kong smashes it at the end. But Wade says, you know what, H, H can fix your bike. You know, he's got a garage, and uh, he specializes in vehicles within the Oasis. So they're going to go over to H's garage next. Why don't you take us into this scene? Yeah, so they, they go there to fix Artemis's bike. She gives it to H. And inside we see that H is building an actual Iron Giant, and that will come into play later in the movie. And H is going to start fixing her bike while Artemis and Wade continue to talk. They start kind of quizzing each other about Halliday. And Wade's being, like, really awkward with her. It is a bit cringy. Like, honestly, the whole movie is a bit cringy. You kind of have to deal with it. I'm sure some of that is intentional. Some of it's not. But they're arguing about the race and the the first challenge. And Artemis says, Halliday hated making rules. And that's going to stick with Wade. And suddenly Wade is going to get a call from his Aunt Alice in real life. We are going to, from this scene, get a cut to a commercial of some game, and then it you know cuts to Wade you know back in real life. And I actually like these commercials, like the environment. It's very like Running Man esque, where there's these like kind of classic dystopian, over the top commercials about like how to improve your life with all this like shit that you don't need. So I think that was a good inclusion. When Wade gets home, he gets immediately slapped by his aunt's boyfriend Rick for stealing his aunt's gloves. And Rick reveals that he spent all the money that they had uh, for their house in the game. And this upsets Alice. And then so, like, Rick punches Wade. And then, like, Alice, like, tells Rick to go away. And then, like, threatens to kick Wade out. So, like... I love, I love how she just says, go to your room, yeah. Rick. Go to your room, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> he, he literally just struck a child. Yeah, and so that's, like, actually... With a closed fist. <laughs> part of my problem is, like... Like, yeah. one, I know they were, like, trying to show, like, the effect that that the Oasis is having on people and the degree to which some people are taking it. But like this is like straight up physical abuse that I don't think is just like handled well actually at all. Like they just don't come back to it. Yeah. I think, I think the problem with Alice and Rick is they're kind of caricatures. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't really feel like they're honestly in the same movie as everybody else. And, and they don't feel like real people to me. Rick just feels like, Hey, that's the asshole stepdad. Or in this case, 
boyfriend to his aunt, right? So I don't know. I don't really even know if it's needed. Like Wade's real life world might be shitty, and, and maybe that's why we can understand he spends so much time in the Oasis. But I don't think his real life needs to be that shitty for him to spend time in the Oasis. Like he can just be addicted to the goddamn Oasis. Yeah, right? exactly. Plus, like I don't really see that having an effect on Wade at all. Like maybe he's just been dealing with it. But like I feel if you take it out, my interpretation and perspective of Wade is like the same still. You know what I mean? I don't. It doesn't impact his arc at all. It doesn't impact in anything else in the film, yeah. really. And so, like, that's why I think it's just a little irresponsible just to, like, use, like, physical abuse so flippantly. And I think that's made me a little comfortable in that sense. But I just wish they wouldn't have had it in there or at least done something more with it. So Yeah, I know we're talking about child abuse, Jacob, but I, I do have a question for you. What is James Holiday's uh, favorite uh, shooter game? Goldeneye. Uh, and who does he play with? Uh, what's his favorite mode? Slappers? Slappers only, yeah. bitch. What's his favorite food? I forget. Hot pocket. Oh, dude, fuck hot pockets. Hot pockets are terrible. Food. <laughs> I used to, I used to eat hot pockets um, every day. One year, I'd come home, eat hot pockets, and put on an episode of The Sopranos when that was a thing. What's his favorite restaurant? <laughs> Fucking Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese, which it should be noted was created by Nolan Bushnell, who also started Atari, <laughs> ironically oh, wow. enough. So we can understand why that might be, but. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese sucks, oh, yeah, right? Terrible, uh, absolute hellscape. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even as a child, like, yeah, you wanted to go there, but looking back, why would anybody want to be in a Chuck E. Cheese? Just like the creepiest ass, like animatronic animals. <laughs> like very uncomfortable. Like no matter what age you are. So. Bad pizza, disease infected balls. Yeah, ball pits pit, are cool though. So I remember there was a Jurassic <laughs> Park game that was awesome at Chuck E. Cheese. So yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't exclusive. I know, to Chuck E. But, Cheese, but perhaps yeah, it was. You never know. But, <laughs> anyway. but anyway, Rick did st- strike him in the face with a closed <laughs> fist. Um, but we should note that the reason that Watts, or at least in the book, he kind of hammers this home more. Which I have read the book. Did you read the book? I have not. I've actually read it twice. I suppose I read it once with my eyeballs and once with my ears. <laughs> and <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you, and um, and 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 I'd be hard pressed to tell you um, the differences between the book and the movie. In in the in the specifics, there are some kind of general ones that are a little bit more obvious and broad. But I would say that uh, it's very important to research Halliday because the game and to find an Easter egg is very contingent on like '80s pop culture and Halliday's life in particular. In uh, the book it, you really have to know you're like 80 shit in this one it seems to more be more like you have to know your holiday shit but regardless he was uh you know a child in the 1980s which is why 1980s is is going to be making a huge comeback in the in the 2040s can't wait jacob even though we're having our 1980s moment actually right now uh primarily due to things like stranger things but wade watts nursing his black eye he goes and he is going to i guess try to catch some z's you know let's see what he did there he's going to try to catch some z's on his uh washing machine and he starts to think about that line that artemis said that holiday doesn't like to make rules jacob that brings us to the holiday journals what's going on here this is basically a library for all of holiday's memories so wade's gonna go he's gonna watch a memory between Halliday and Morrow, just a conversation. They're having a bit of a fight about the Oasis and what it's supposed to be. Morrow is asking him to make more rules to, you know, set more boundaries for players. 
And Halliday says, I don't want to make more rules. I'm a dreamer. I build worlds. Moro's point is like, listen, like this thing has become bigger than you. It's going to move forward whether you like it or not. And we got to be careful. So I think, again, like we're kind of supposed to like agree with Halliday for like this whole movie. But like Moro ends up being like a weirdly sympathetic character at the end, which is I thought was interest- an interesting choice. But um, right before he walks away, Wade hears Halliday say, why can't we go backwards for once? And this is the clue that Wade needed because the next day he's going to go back in the race. And what happens, Carter? Well, I will note that he actually makes it a little bit more specific than that. He says, why can't we go just go backwards for once? Backwards, really fast, as fast as we can. Put the pedal <laughs> to the metal. <laughs> and then he says, Bill and Ted did yeah. it. <laughs> Okay, so obviously th- this is going to be a huge clue for Wade slash his avatar, uh, Parzival, who's often referred to in the film as simply Z. And now we've got Wade and Artemis at the starting line, and Artemis somehow knows that Z's figured something out, and the race begins, and everybody goes forward except for Wade. He sits there, and he decides... I'm just going to put that pedal to the metal and go backwards. And he goes backwards and the floor opens up and now he's on this track that's going underneath everyone and somehow he's still, I don't know, going in the same direction. He sees the T-Rex above, the wrecking balls. He sees King Kong. And before we know it, he has made it to the finish line. He's completed the race, the first ever. We get our victory song. We get the appearance of Anorak, Voiced, of course, by Mark Rylance, who plays James Holiday, and he says, nice racing Padawan, a Star Wars reference for you there. You are the first to finish. Here you go. Here's a key and a clue. And he shows up on a leaderboard as the person in the first position, Parzival with a bullet number one. Jacob, what do you think about this clue and the idea that, hey, he just had to go backwards to win it? I think it's fine, although... (laughs) Like, I know it's a movie where they're in a fucking vir- virtual world. Like, would someone not have just tried to go backwards just once or, like, accidentally, you know? I don't know. You you would have thought, because I know when I play video games, there are days you're just like, I'm just going to go wherever the fuck I yeah. can go. Because you always test the limits yeah. to say, how far out did they build this thing? Um, I, I'm not exactly a current gamer, but that's what I would have done back in my, you know, 1990s days for mm-hmm. sure. And then you get to the edge, and you're just like, oh, I can't go any further. So I definitely would have gone backwards at yeah. one point. I yeah, would, Especially in five years. Yeah. And the race is being held on, on specific intervals. But do we know how often this race is being held? Is it like once a day? There is, there's like no way to tell from the movie. Like it gives us no timeline. So it could be every day. It could be every month. Like I think you have to pay to get in or something. So maybe you have to spend you know time getting coins or whatever. So I'm not sure. Often enough, though. And there's... Wouldn't you expect there to be way more people in this race? Yeah, I mean it's like it's like mostly all like IOI members, but I think the point is like mm-hmm. it's been 5 years since the race was even discovered and like no progress has been made. So maybe in the first, you know, year the race was packed, but now only the dedicated gunters, clanners and sixers are, are really doing yeah. it. Yeah, I guess that's it. So <sighs> All right. Uh, We we then get our first cutback to Innovative Online Industries, or IOI, and are introduced to Nolan Sorrento, this son of a bitch, Jacob. He's talking stock prices. He's talking money. um, He's talking, you know, selling the visual fields of people's uh, goggles within the Oasis. He says we could sell upwards of 80% before it induces seizures, which is a nice little kind of throwaway (laughs) gag, funny line. 
<laughs> so Jacob, I mean, I, obviously Nolan Sorrento is the bad guy mm-hmm. here. But what is the comment on Sorrento? Is he just like corporate bad guys or something else? I don't think it's deeper than that. I mean, near the end, there's like, there is a part where you're like, okay, what is like, what is Sorrento thinking? It's like a, a major moment. But up to that point, he's just like, you know, douchebag. Never got listened to when he was an intern. Turned into a corporate asshole. Like, I don't, I don't think there's any like sympathy towards him. Do you think there is? I guess not. Even as an intern, he was an asshole because yeah. we see that in a flashback scene. So, yeah. like, always an asshole, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Why does he want to win this contest so bad, Jacob? Because if they win, they get control of the Oasis, and then they can sell advertisements and do basically whatever they want with it, anything to to make more money. So uh, it's very, very akin to basically any major corporation now. Yeah. Is is IOI right now, what business are they in? Are they in the business of creating worlds within the Oasis? Is that what they're doing? They're creating essentially what would be you know websites on the internet, I guess? I think so. I, I, I think so, yeah. All right, dope. Why isn't anybody built a new oasis? Is this is this like if we'd have like a a competitive worldwide web? Like nobody's just thought of it. Probably, I don't know. Good okay. questions, man. I'm does just... he got it? Does he got a? Does he got a fucking? Uh, does he got a patent on it? You think? <laughs> Probably, I would imagine. Uh, okay, just making sure. I just yeah. want to know kind of what the. Uh, the principles of oh, the business are a lot here. of logistical and technical and all sorts of questions that don't get answered by this movie, but we can go digging. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Z and H, um, although there is going to be a comment on capitalism in this movie, they're about to go to the store, the <laughs> digital store, <laughs> and they're going to look to buy some shit because why not? Jacob, what are they going to buy? Buys three things. He buys a holy hand grenade. Dope. Buys a Zemeckis cube, which is a, a Rubik's cube that's just called a Zemeckis cube. Why is it called a Zemeckis cube? That's a weird name. Uh, we'll find out later <laughs> and uh, it's yeah you could probably guess without knowing you know but it's it's gonna it's gonna send people back in time but. well i guess here's my question like we're film people you know mm-hmm. it, it, an average viewer do they know the name robert zemeckis maybe not actually and that was the that's my question with the uh like the buckaroo bonsai reference later in this movie i have no idea what the fuck that is i had to look it up so. Okay, that's just unforgivable. But Bullshit. I will note uh, the adventures of Buckaroo Bonds. Okay, we'll get back to that one. Yeah. But uh, holy, <laughs> holy hand grenade. You know what that's a reference to, at least. Monty Python. Okay, Monty Python. But even though whenever I hear holy hand grenade, the first thing that comes to my mind is actually uh, the game Worms. You ever play Worms? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, holy wasn't hand Worms? Wasn't Worms clearly riffing on Monty Python too? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Right. But he he is able to buy all of these things because he got a bonus from winning the race, I guess. So he's got a holy hand grenade, a Zemeckis cube, and then I think he just buys an X one haptic suit, right? He buys a, an actual physical suit mm-hmm. um, to enter the oasis. Yeah. Um, so he's just like buying a, a a ton of shit with his his winnings um, because you know he doesn't know how to deal with his finances. He's not putting it away for retirement. I mean, yeah. I, we we can get into. You know, what Wade needs to learn about personal finance, maybe in a different. T- but he's really he's really banking on that half a trillion dollars, I suppose. All right. But in the next scene, he unpacks his X one suit. Um, you mentioned that you're fine with performances. I actually think Ty Sheridan is kind of the weakest performance in the film. I think Olivia Cook is a much better actor, mm-hmm. but he delivers this line in in and probably my favorite line delivery is him in the movie when he gets his X one suit. Do you remember what he says? I don't. He goes, oh, yeah. 
he delivers it in like this like really weirdly sexual way um almost as if he, he is climaxed just by unboxing the x1 suit um and we're gonna get a a, a direct hard cut then to, to nolan sorrento which in itself is kind of funny um and sorrento is is logging into the oasis but Jacob, Nolan Sorrento, we know, is a, is a douchebag, and we didn't make that up. He's actually called a douchebag more than once in the film. Mm-hmm. He's such a douchebag that he doesn't remember what his password is. So he's got it written on a piece of paper. He's not just in a suit, but in a chair. He's got this nice little chair. Jacob, first of all, do you know what his password is? Bossman69. Yeah, Bossman69, with the S's as fives, by the way, because awesome. Makes your password stronger, of course. Yep. Um, I, I, at first, I was like, oh, you could have gone all the way, Spielberg. You could have made a boob man 69. Yeah. But um, either way, Sorrento enters the Oasis. He is going to be like a big gangster looking fuck. Um, and he's going to be meeting with, I, I guess, like this Oasis mercenary by the name of IROC. Jacob, why is he meeting with IROC? Iraq is clearly some like super experienced player. He's also played by TJ Miller, by the way. Speaking of douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, to be fair to TJ Miller, uh, he's a good actor and really funny, but by all accounts, a terrible human. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. And he's going to get this orb, the orb of Asavox from Iraq, and says, Keep it for me. And he also the orb wants of him. Asavox. <laughs> uh, that, that's a gag in the movie. Um, to come up several times but no one is going to ask iraq to hunt down wade which he will be doing for a lot of this movie now so um i kind of took that uh nolan's avatar was like superman in a suit i mean it definitely is a gangster but i don't know if it was just some ironic play like superman uh, i didn't think superman i literally thought like 1930s big gangster he's smoking a cigar and stuff that's probably he's like better, a high-powered yeah. businessman because he in real life he's you know kind of a scrawny little guy and he's mm-hmm. like this is he he let's just say he's compensating for something <laughs> um Carter, who, would, who would your avatar be well let me ask you this first how would you describe wade's avatar we didn't really get into that what does parcival look like he's just kind of like a like a conventional almost elf-like hero Mm-hmm. I guess I don't think he's is anything it, it, in particular. He's like a conglomerate, so just like Artemis. They're kind of like a conglomerate of like species and and races that you might see in games. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of characters that you see in games are kind of like anime. I guess mm-hmm. like um, definitely Asian inspired art wise. Uh, my avatar would be me. I mean, how can you improve on this? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the one thing I do like, uh, what about you? What about your avatar? Uh, Tony Soprano. Me, I know. You're going to be yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, Carter. Yeah. <laughs> um, Irock, did you notice what he doesn't like? He doesn't like steampunk, pirates, and tabula, which mm-hmm. is uh, a funny line, but I, I don't know if it lands if you don't know what tabula is. Do you know what tabula is? I didn't, and I actually didn't even look it up. I kind of forgot to. Uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a Middle Eastern salad. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was funny, I guess. Yeah. I, I didn't quite understand it, but I guess it was, like, uh, absurdist. Yeah, I mean, pretty much all of Irox's lines in this movie are just, like, gags. Some of them are pretty funny, some of them aren't, so. Okay, so moving on, we get a quick scene that shows that Artemis, H, Daito, and Sho, uh, who are all of Wade's friends, basically, uh, they all get the key and the clue um, from Halliday, and they're all going to try to figure out what the clue means, which all which has to deal with escaping the past. And so we're going to go back to the Halliday journals, 
Um, Wade is now like a celebrity in the Oasis. And so when he walks in, like he's getting his picture taken with a bunch of people and everyone loves him. And then Artemis <laughs> comes to Wade dressed as Goro from Mortal Kombat, steals him inside this room. And then a chest burster from Aliens comes out. So just a, a wild set of references here. And she's going to tell him to get a disguise and it makes him look like Clark Kent, which he will use in this scene and nowhere else. So, And then we're going to have Artemis and Wade watching another one of Halliday's memories. So, Carter, why don't you tell us about these memories? Sure. This is 2025, just before the Oasis went live. And the first thing I would note is Spielberg shoots this in sort of like a sneakily creative way. He has he's shooting live action characters, so we're getting you know CG generated characters watching a live action action scene, and within the live action scene, he has set up cameras all around, so that our CG characters within the Oasis can kind of like pan around, zoom in, zoom out, and go all around the field. So it's pretty interesting visually, and what they're talking about is a woman, Jacob, because who, what else would they be talking about? And in this case, it is going to be a date that Holiday had just gone gone on, a first date with a woman named Karen Gamertag Kira. And Artemis recognizes this name as Karen Underwood. Oh, that's Morrow's wife, but she just went on a date with Holiday. And Morrow's trying to get some information out of him. Um, we should note that Morrow is, is, I guess... Um, for lack of a better term, like a normal uh, social guy. And Holiday um, might be on the spectrum. He definitely has social anxiety. He is nervous, and Rylance plays it as such. And he says, you know, she wanted to dance, so we watched a movie <laughs> instead. Um, and Morrow's like, oh, yeah, I want some information. And what we learn is that this is the only time that Karen is mentioned in the entire Holiday journals. So what happened? Nothing. I invited her over. Well, did you at least get her name? Yeah, Kira. I told you, I like the character in the Dark Crystal. That's her gamer tag. Karen. Karen. Okay. Karen Underwood. Karen no. Underwood. Oh, Karen Underwood. As in Alden Morrow's wife? Okay. Just watch. So listen, you and Karen Underwood, what'd you do? She wanted to go dancing. So we watched a movie. And? Where's the juice? Oh, Give me there's... some juice. <laughs> there is no juice. Oh, God. Hold the phone. I don't, I don't Halliday went on a date with Ogden Morrow's wife? Just once. Years before they were even married, but yeah. And despite that, and the fact that she died, the name Kira is only mentioned once in all of Halliday's journals. That's not possible. It is. Look it and up. And the curator is like, oh, that can't be. She was an important part of both of their lives. And Wade goes, no, I'll bet you. This is the only time. And the curator is kind of incensed. And he goes over there and he checks. He's like, you're right. Um, uh, you've won the bet. And he flips him a quarter. So now, you know, he, he got a quarter out, out of it. Yippee. Jacob, Artemis at the end of the scene, though, she is going to uh, ask Wade out, right? Is this a, is this a date? Is this one of those dates that the that the young people talk about? Who knows? This is actually <laughs> going to be what H and Wade are talking about in the next scene. We'd also like to note that this scene with the curator specifically becomes a little more important, or at least significant in retrospect when we get to the end of this movie, which we'll cover when we get there. But H and Wade are going to be talking. H is basically warning him not to get too obsessed with Artemis. 
he says like she could be using you for information. She could be like a 300 pound dude living in his mom's basement, which is again is going to be kind of that cautionary tale of this entire movie. Also will be important later on for numerous reasons, but moving on to the arrival at the dancing club. Uh, I'll start by saying this is one of my least favorite scenes in the movie. I think it drags a little too long. I don't think it's particularly interesting. There is one line in it that cracks me up for uh, a reason that hopefully is ironic, but I don't think it is. So Wade goes to the club, meets up with Artemis, and Irock is also at this club looking for Wade. And they're both there trying to figure out the challenge and, you know, how the challenge has to do with Halliday's obsession with Kira slash Karen. And in typical Spielberg fashion, they're going to take a leap of faith and kind of start this in-air dancing. (laughs) This is the line. What is this, this, The Last Crusade? (laughs) Right, exactly. So this is the line that kills me. So Wade is going to start up staying alive by the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. And we have this, like, Saturday Night Fever sequence. (laughs) And Artemis goes, oh, cool, old school. <laughs> like, it's a movie where they're obsessed with the 80s for a song that came out in 1977. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like, I mean, when it... they enter the club, Blue Monday by New Order is playing. So it, clearly this is a club where they're playing 80s, probably late 70s music all the time. But I, I didn't have a problem with that, Jacob. You know why? Because Staying Alive um, is awesome, and uh, Parzival's going to give us some smooth moves. No, no, By no, the no. way, <laughs> he was wearing his Buckaroo Banzai outfit, and Artemis appreciated it, unlike Jacob, who had to Google it, apparently. Yeah. That, that, I don't know. It's Of course, it's a cool song. It's like a neat little sequence, but I just like, <laughs> oh, cool, old school. <laughs> like. What do you think about this meet? I mean, we've had the meet cute. You, you're like, it's awkward. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, teenagers meeting. And this is, you know, them kind of feeling each other out, both figuratively and literally a little bit later in the scene. Um, it's a little uncomfortable, I think, at one point. I, for what we learned about Artemis, I don't quite understand why she gets a little handsy in this scene. And she's like, uh, wait, are you... Are, well... She doesn't call him Wade, and that's going to be an important part of the scene. Of course, she doesn't know his real name. She goes, you know, Parsifal, are you wearing a, a full body suit with, uh, you know, touch sensors? And she's like, groping his chest. He does have a fine. He does have a funny line where he's like, yeah, in the crotch or something like that. Um, but it's like it's kind of weird, right? Yeah, it is. It is certainly questionable touching. And I want to. This is kind of the beginning of some problems I have with their relationship. But we'll talk about it at the end of this scene. So. Like we said, questionable touching going on. Uh, Wade's feeling it uh, in a couple a couple of ways, but Wade's like, "We should totally meet up in the real world." And Artemis is like, you, "Like you wouldn't like me. Like this isn't who I really am." <laughs> First of all, we'll learn why that is, which is going to be such like a bullshit, bullshit explanation. Yes, but, but I know. It, so, but Wade ends up telling her her real name and says, "I'm in love with you." <laughs> we'll get back to this like, in a bit too. Pump the brakes, yeah, dude, bro. So, uh, in the end, uh, so like Artemis is pissed that he told her his real name, and then IOI breaks in after them. This is where Wade uses his Zemeckis cube to send everything back in time by sixty seconds. And when they finally escape, Artemis just like kicks him in the chest and like tells him off. And she says like her dad died in a loyalty center trying to like pay debt off. And then he got his expenses raised, he got sick, and that's why she's doing what she's doing. And that loyalty center will come in later, um, and it's you know, a pretty significant you know, thematic point with, with, I think, capitalism and corporations and all that. But uh, the scene is going to end with Iraq telling Sorrento that Parzival is Wade Watts. So, um, obviously some early criticism of corporations, like I just mentioned, like obviously this is a dystopian future. 
also, like I said, I think this whole sequence is a little too long and pretty weak, but let's talk about Wade and his love for Artemis. So this is clearly, like, ridiculous, right? Like, Wade should not be saying this. Wade doesn't know better. Like, Wade is obsessed. This doesn't ever, like, I kind of feel at that point with Artemis' reaction to him, like, it is being criticized as it should be. But, like, later when they meet in real life, I feel like this is not, like, criticized anymore. It's, like, rewarded. And that's why I feel like their relationship is really flimsy. Because, like, Artemis is saying, like, you only see what you want to see. I think Spielberg's also saying that. I don't think this is supposed to be endearing, right? Like, clearly it's not. Or am I misguided there? I think that there are a few things to say here. And first, in defense, I suppose, of the I love you is one, they are young. This happens often and two he thinks he lives in a movie right he is going to be a student of like 1980s movies so i can almost see in his head that this is what you do you make these big grand gestures just like john cusack and say anything or any of those other john hughes movies so in his mind i would have almost like a reference right at this point of him like Mm. dropping a line from an 80s movies as opposed to just like i'm in love with you yeah uh i wish that it would have been a little bit more pointed so that we could say oh he he He's, like, corrupted by pop culture. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that there is something to say there. Um, the the fact that she says, you know, you don't live in the real world, Z, plus, uh, you know, this isn't really what I look like. I think that there isn't a comment. I think there is a comment there that perhaps is an indictment of things like social media. Because she even says something to, to the effect of, you know, you only see what I want you to see. She's essentially, mm-hmm. like, putting forward her best self. Part of the problem comes in is that when they do meet in real life, like you said, she doesn't seem to like be pissed anymore. Like, maybe she's just putting on a front here. Maybe she's just scared and because she does love him back and she's like, fuck that. And, and maybe he is a distraction to her charge. Um, by the way, Jacob, what is the name of this dance club? The Distracted Globe, which is a little on the nose, but I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the major themes of this movie, right? Everybody's fucking distracted by the mm-hmm. Oasis. And she's like, um, I'm distracted by all these other things. I need to stay focused because I am essentially here for real world life and death stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's an explanation in there, but I think that, yeah, it, it just it just doesn't come off that smoothly. It doesn't. I think it's not handled well at all. And we'll get back to it when they meet up in real life later. Cause I have, I have even more comments on it and I just, I have problems with it as I'm sure I've made clear, but we're going to be uh, with Wade again. We see some guy with face tats <laughs> watching him. This is back in the real world. He, he goes to his hideout and he has a message from Sorrento, which he will accept. So uh, Wade is going to be a hologram in Sorrento's real world office. Sorrento is trying to bribe him with a house, a job, um, you know, gear in the Oasis, $25 million if he finds the egg. And this really takes Wade aback in the real world. I actually really like this scene where he hears how much money he get and he gets like physically affected by that in the real world because he realizes how important that would be for him and his family probably. So I thought that was a really good inclusion. And... Wade's trying to, you know, kind of quiz Sorrento to see if he knows what he's talking about. And Sorrento has these scholars in his ear. And that's something we'll see a couple times in these movies, these holiday scholars that work for IOI. He's telling him in his ear, like, how to answer. Oh, he's trying to trick you. Make sure you answer this. Uh, But at the end, uh, you know, Wade's going to tell him he's full of shit. Sorrento says, you know what? Good. I, I, I I wanted you to say no because I wanted to win. 
And guess what? I know who you are. You're Wade Watts. I know where you live, Columbus, Ohio, and the stacks. Do you think anyone's going to care about an explosion in Columbus? So, Carter, what happens after this? So, Wade realizes he's in deep shit now. And here's the thing. Uh, Sorrento does have this bit of information, but he also thinks that Wade is actually in the stacks because he hasn't moved in three days. However, when Wade logs into the Oasis, he doesn't do so from home. He scales down from his trailer and enters the secret van, so he's actually not there. And the drones overhead uh, from IOI are kind of trailing to his home. Wade is running. He's trying to call Alice. He gets Rick on the phone. Rick, of course, doesn't want to talk to him. Rick should be in his fucking room anyway. I don't think he was ever let out. (laughs) And he, he says, you know... Um, get out, it's going to blow up. And guess what? It fucking blows up. Like, Rick and Alice die in this explosion. This is a huge explosion. The stacks come down. Wade didn't make it back, thankfully. I don't know what he was going to do if he made it back, except get blowed up himself. And he starts to run the other direction. Um, He does survive. He escapes dirty, distraught, uh, disheveled. He's like uh, Tom Cruise in War of the Worlds. And he goes to try to contact the high five, right? His suit is still intact. He goes back to his secret fan. By the way, the high five are the, his friends that, because they're the five on the leaderboard. And then the tattoo man shows up, Jacob, and he captures him. This is by far one of the oddest shots in the film uh, because he chloroforms him. And then Spielberg, <laughs> and then Spielberg pans his camera up to a shot of this tattooed guy's face staring down the barrel of the camera, and then it dissolves away. What? Why why is this shot in there? Especially since in the next scene we're going to learn out learn that this tattoo guy is a friend of Artemis. He's not even a bad guy. First of all, why do you got to chloroform him? Can't you just ask him to come? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead of abscond with him. Um but I, like I, this whole tattoo runner is stupid. Yeah, it really is. He's he's actually going to end up costing them later too. So, uh I think it's a great sequence. I don't think they gave enough time with Wade to like let him mourn like the loss of his aunt. I also don't think we cared about his aunt enough, but also like a lot of other people died. Like mm-hmm. they just bombed like a small part of the stack. So very, very fucked up and actually caught me off guard the first time. I was like, wow, we actually did that. So that will lightly come into play later in the movie. But yeah. How so do you face- feel about, how do you feel about Rick though? I feel about Rick. Fuck Rick. <laughs> <laughs> you, hear, you heard it here first. Yeah. folks. Yeah. Fuck Rick. <laughs> Yeah, hot take, but yeah, so if we get face tat sequence, fucking face tat. When he wakes up, Artemis is there in real life. Uh, her name's Samantha. Um, she's very, very pretty. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's just establish this now. Olivia Cook is a, is a very pretty girl. Yeah. So, and the reason that we highlight that is because of her insecurities. Um, Jacob, in the book, uh, I think we are led to believe that uh, her insecurities might be a little bit more well-founded, but what is she insecure about as she begins to talk about Wade? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're talking together, and then they you see Artemis's birthmark on her face. And let me tell you, this is one of the coolest birthmarks I've ever seen. I think it looks kind of <laughs> badass. Like, Yeah, I mean, it does not distract from her beauty at yeah. all. I, I mean, well, you know, maybe we're supposed to believe that she was made fun of for it. Um, when she was a child, but Jacob, I mean, <laughs> is this birthmark going to detract literally any man in the world from being attracted to like Olivia Cook in this situation? No, not a chance. And it's, <laughs> I think it's in very poor taste. Like she's like, I lived my whole life with it. You don't have to pretend as if she's some monster. And then Wade like, like literally physically pushes her hair back and he's like, oh, why would that scare me, babe? And like, they're kind of in love <laughs> already. And so like the last time they interacted, Artemis literally like 
physically hit him and now they're just like kind of in love so like just kind of gross honestly on this like dealing with her whole life thing with the both like birthmark like not handled well like Mm -hmm. i think what they should have done is like they don't fall in love like expectations aren't met they like really hammer in that theme like maybe it doesn't fit in the like the grander scheme of this movie but as it is i think it's kind of a cop-out honestly like they're just in love for the rest of this movie and there's like nothing there's no other comment on it like the major comment's going to come later with h and i hey, think man. that's, I that's mean, a cop out so judd nelson and molly ringwald man Amelia <laughs> westevez and ali sheedy what are you gonna do jacob this is the way it goes <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> not to mention ali sheedy and matthew broderick and war games man <laughs> ali sheedy in in any other movie she's in <laughs> yeah. i don't know i just like i think i think they missed a, a very good chance to be critical of of something that needs to be you know they need to be critical of i don't know i just it rubs me the wrong way it makes me i guess i'm just still kind of surprised that it is the way it is you know yeah i mean i was taken aback when i saw the film and i and they translated the birthmark as as what they did um because she's it's not like she's disfigured and even if she was you know Mm -hmm. there's just nothing there that would make us believe like oh what like this is this is what you were concerned about. Like you you literally have like your hair in front of your face, which seems actually actually like a pretty good solution for most of your life anyway. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it looks cool, I think. But like I I remember the first time I see it, just like remembering him like physically push her hair back mm-hmm. and be like, why would that scare me? Is like stop, <laughs> just yeah. stop it. So. And they're and they're young too. And as like people older than characters in films now that are going through this process, it does feel. You know, somewhat like creepy to be like, oh, these these kids feel young. I remember that with, um, oh, that what's that one Wes Anderson film? Moonlight. Oh, the one I had a problem. Uh, sorry, Moonrise. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom. I had a big problem with that film, especially of the sexualization of, of like really young people in that one. Mm-hmm. I'm in this in this one at least. They're like, um, they've gone through puberty. Right. <laughs> but, I think my issue is more as like they 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 made Artemis to not be this person. You know, and then suddenly she's like kind of, you know, kind of plays second fiddle to Wade in some ways. Um, I mean, she's still going to be a hero in this movie, thankfully. But I mean, I don't really need to say any more. I think I captured my my issues with it. But um, yeah, she's actually going to be a hero right now, man. She goes, oh, shit. She figured out that second clue and she goes to shoot up. She does not shoot up. That would be actually an interesting play. Where are the drugs in this world, man? Seriously, Minority Report, we we had a pretty big comment, but you'd imagine in, in this world with so many people living in those stacks, there'd be a pretty big uh, heroin problem. Yep. And, you know, maybe, oh, shit, maybe that's something behind Artemis's character as well. Um, maybe she's hiding that from, from Wade, and, and she's like, I'm not what I'm putting forward in real life, and maybe it's not just the birthmark, that's the cover. But she's not shooting up, at least in this scene, maybe that's, uh, you know, off camera. Instead, she is suiting up, and uh, <laughs> she does say that this leap that Holiday didn't take was with Kira. It was the date. What did they do on that date? Oh, yeah, they went to the movies. So what did they do? All of the high five Head to the holiday journals. Jacob, I mentioned War Games uh, real briefly for a reason, because what we get coming up in the book is actually um, a, a protracted sequence that takes place within the film War Games, uh, in which essentially the characters, um, in this case, Wade just has to know all the lines to War Games. And because he was such a holiday in 1980s freak, he, kn- he knows all the lines to War Games. Jacob, do you know all the lines to War Games? Have you even seen War Games, bro? No, no, Dude. no. Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy, uh, watch it. 
good Cold War film, much better than Red Dawn, but we don't get war games in this movie. What they're going to do is they're going to say, what movie could they have watched? Let's go back. He's cataloged all of his films. Could it have been The Fly? No. What about Say Anything? No. Part of the clue was this, though, Jacob. A creator who hates his own creation. What movie is it? It is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, famously hated by Stephen King. All right, Jacob. The high five, then, are literally going to enter The Shining. When this happened in the movie theater, I couldn't believe my goddamn luck because The Shining is one of my favorite films, my favorite horror film, and I love it, even though Stephen King is is not a fan. I think that this is the best sequence in the film, why don't you go ahead and take us into it and um, and walk us through what's taking place here within the Overlook Hotel? Yeah, they're going to walk in and they need to find the key. And so they first mimic uh, the shot of Shelley Duvall's character walking up to the typewriter. Luke. Ticking clock. Okay, so I'm estimating about... Five minutes to find the key? Yeah, there's so many keys in The Shining, though. Where do we start? I've never seen The Shining. Is it really scary? Uh, I have to watch it through my fingers. Okay, so we got the keys from room 237, the keys to the snowcat, or the keys they give Jack at the beginning of the movie. Well, if it's the leaf not taken, the key isn't the key at all. I know what snowcat keys are. I see we split. We get all the keys. Hello, Danny. Come play with us. Oh, guys. Y'all want to get out of here? We see the twin girls, and we're going to start this whole kind of chase sequence, sort of, with, like, the River of Blood. We get room 237. We get the creepy lady in the bathtub who turns into, like, a fucking zombie killer. We get the axe coming through the door, the maze, which turns into kind of, like, a variation on all these things. And uh, eventually they rescue H from it. So it's a, a pretty fantastic sequence. Uh, the the attention to detail of recreating the Overlook is amazing. Great job there. We'll talk about the sequence, um, you know, at, at large at the end here. But uh, they're gonna find out that Halliday's biggest fear was kissing a girl, <laughs> and that's that's the leap he couldn't take. So is that your biggest fear too? Yes, Carter. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, hey. <laughs> legitimate question we're, we're told that it's a apparently a pretty common fear yeah. uh, as far as big fears go i just in, in my head when he said that i was like okay we're gonna talk about that line when we're recording and carter's probably gonna ask me jacob <laughs> is that your biggest fear so no well i mean to be fair like if we're talking about you know young boys it might be yeah. what's what makes it funny is that we're talking about like a grown-ass man yeah. right yeah. but if you're like yeah if this is a movie about a 13-year-old boy, his fear is kissing a girl. You can say, oh, yes. And, and maybe that's a comment on Holiday. He is somebody who hasn't grown up, much like Spielberg, which is that half of Spielberg. Do you think that Spielberg ha- had a fear of kissing a girl? you think he kissed a girl until he married Amy Irving, Jacob? <laughs> Probably. He's a pretty good-looking dude in his younger days, so. Well, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway, they they end up in the ballroom, and it's just like this like weird kind of green zombie dancing sequence, and they see Kira dancing with one of them, and everyone's gonna get pulled out except Artemis, and she's gonna jump to Kira and ask her to dance, and then Halliday's avatar will 
appear and give her the the key slash clue before they all get pulled out. So, all right, Carl, let's talk about the sequence. I know for a fact that this sequence rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So, my questions to you are, uh, you know, could anyone but Spielberg get away with this in the first place? Um, is it misguided at all? And what do you think Kubrick himself would think of it? Okay, first, what in particular did people take issue with? I, I mean, I, I think it's going to be the the purists, right? Like the like the, the film slash Kubrick purists, you know, who are just kind of offended at the idea of it being recreated at all, especially in a movie like this. Uh, okay, well, Spielberg was a friend of Stanley Kubrick's, and they got the rights to use it, and so, um, yeah, it's fine. And, and not to mention uh, Christian Kubrick. I was watching the extras on Ready Player One. Christian Kubrick, uh, Stanley Kubrick's widow, uh, came to set, gave her a blessing. They love Spielberg. They said uh, Stanley would have loved this, essentially. So I, I think that it, it works really well. Uh, I think the attention to detail is something that Kubrick would have been a fan of. What I'd be more interested in is actually what Stephen King thinks of this. Uh, Because of his distaste for that film, and in fact he remade The Shining as a TV movie in the 1990s, which was much more faithful to the book, uh, I wonder if Stephen King would be like, I told you, man, (laughs) right? I I know that uh, The Shining doesn't work as a film in in that case. Or would would Stephen King be like, I don't know, maybe I should come around. Like, there's some, some pretty cool shit that Stanley Kubrick did here, and, and, and Spielberg is uh, kind of tapping into some of that. Because, you know, anything that might get somebody else to watch The Shining is fine with me. And, and the, I'm sure there were a lot of young kids who went to see Ready Player One, and they were like, oh, maybe I want to see this movie too. And, and why would we want to devoid anybody of, of such cinematic brilliance? Yeah, it is really amazing when they first enter, like, the Shining theme starts to play. Oh, it's so great. But, I mean, really, though, like, do you think, like, let's say anyone else directed this movie, like, if it wasn't Spielberg, would you still be okay with it? Well, I don't think anybody else could have directed this movie but Spielberg. I think the only reason this movie could have been made at all and for Universal to secure the rights to all of these things was because of Steven Spielberg. I don't think anybody else could have done. Maybe Robert Zemeckis going back to the Who Framed Roger Rabbit yeah, of it about, all. But what about Cameron, fuck James Cameron in this case. I mean, there's <laughs> no way, dude. Cameron, no. But you know why? Because people like Steven Spielberg and people yeah. don't like James Cameron. Yeah. In the business, like James right. Cameron is famously difficult to get along with. Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg is famously easy to get along with. So, right. I think that's the answer. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I think it's a fantastic sequence. I really like it. You know, and I love Stanley Kubrick. I don't know. And this, like (laughs) this, this gets back to like what I talked about at the beginning of the, uh, the Tintin like episode, like you're going to get criticized for liking this movie. You're probably going to get criticized for hating this movie too. Like just, just fucking like it or dislike it and shut up. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, I will say if I had my druthers, they would have gone into that orgy scene in eyes wide shut. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would have been amazing yeah. you just see five people showing up because uh, there's a really funny line here where, where uh, H uh, H is really lost because he has, actually hasn't seen The Shining because he doesn't like horror films and show <laughs> says you know it's so scary I had to watch it through my eyes so you can only imagine within that context of them entering this strange world of eyes wide shut I think that would actually have been pretty dope yo yeah. Well, I think some of the criticism is going to come just from the, the references in general. Like, what do you get out of making references? Are they references for references sake? Are they making a point? Like, I remember reading a, a, a review somewhere that says, like, the, the movie by the Iron Giant is is 
like the Iron Giant is trying not to be a weapon. He doesn't want to be a weapon, you know, and it's, he's this huge metaphor for that. And in this movie, he gets turned into a weapon and that rubs some people the wrong way. So it's kind of like, does the whole point of the shining and, uh, you know, all of its themes and everything, do they get, I don't know, you know, lightened by just being a, a reference in a Spielberg movie about fun. You know, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with that, but you know, I don't know. What's I, the point of the shining? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't talk about the shining, but like, I don't. Know, if they like had recreated like the Breakfast Club with like all five of them dressed up, like I'd have been fine with that. Like that's my favorite movie. But it's also or, or, like or have just done the War Games one. I mean, fewer people would have, I suppose, gotten that reference. Right. The Shining is like big and bold, and mm-hmm. it, it. I think it does bring in something visually interesting. Uh, if if not, you know, kind of thematically interesting too. You're talking about like a dysfunction of a family. You've got a. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of the seedy underbelly of of the hotel. I don't know, man. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it. We, sounds like we both. It, yeah, we both like it. Um, to those who don't, you know why? Don't. You know why, Jacob? Because it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that's where it ends for me. Yeah. It does, I mean, it that's does where not. it ends for me too. Yeah. We would certainly be criticized for that, but I don't give a fuck. Let's go back yeah. to in in this movie in particular, because we should say that like not right. all movies should be dissected equally. Mm-hmm. And Ready Player One is not a movie that is meant to be high art, frankly, right? It's right. meant to be middle brow pop culture entertainment. So give me that middle brow pop culture entertainment. I, I can escape for a couple of hours. And that's what Spielberg is so good at. Mm-hmm. So if I want to go into The Shining again, take me into The Shining and we can have some fun. Yeah, agreed. But I hate the tattoo face guy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And he's going to appear here in the next scene because they're going to continue to hunt for Wade in real life. And, uh, finale <laughs> who i think we got introduced at one point this is like sorrento's like secondhand woman she's basically gonna be hunting wade she's like a, a non-character character but she's gonna they're gonna see face tag guy on a drone and they start to track him and then we get back to artemis's hideout they're trying to figure out the third clue and that's when ioi busts in artemis is gonna help wade escape but she's gonna get caught and they tell her that IOI has assumed all of her debt. She has to work in a loyalty center till she pays it off. So basically, like corporations are straight up just like enslaving people for their debt, which is, you know, right. And unless something pointed. changed in the constitution, then this would be completely illegal. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we used to have debtor prisons, and and we have since made rulings on that to say actually no, you can't go to prison just because you're in debt. So no. Yeah, right. I don't think I don't think the legality of it is the point, but whatever. Well, I'm just it. saying, you yeah. know, government. <laughs> why, why, where's the government at, Jacob? Where is the government at, man? I, that's what I'm saying. You know why? I, I will I will point this out because we have the IOI all over this place, and then at the very end of this film, like three cop cars roll up, and it's like, there's cops in this world. Right. Like where they've been this entire time? <laughs> where were they when a fucking building got blown up? In I the know middle of this movie. It, it didn't matter because it was in the stacks. Nobody cares about what happens in the stacks. Yeah, I mean that's probably actually the point. To be fair, but anyway, Wade's gonna go on the street. He's gonna meet H in real life, and H is actually a woman, uh, a, a black woman, uh, Helen. So there's like the point that H was trying to make to him eventually. Like, what if it's actually a dude? Like, what if H is actually a woman? And you know, I think that's like where they're trying to get with the expectations versus reality thing, but would have been much better dealt with with Artemis, in my opinion. I already covered that. He's also going to meet Dido and Sho. They're going to escape an H's van, and they're going to go try to rescue Artemis from IOI. We're going to cut to the Loyalty Center after this, Carter. Why don't you go ahead and take us into Artemis and the Loyalty Center? 
sure, Artemis or Samantha, because we're in the real world here, is basically in this telephone booth-sized box. Um, the suit she is wearing is essentially a haptic suit, and she has a visor that she cannot take off, so she's going to be permanently in the Oasis at the behest of IOI. She is a prisoner. And within the Oasis, then, as we cut from Samantha to her avatar, um, she is there to lay charges, and, you know, she's going to feel the punishments of, of literal kind of like whippings in the real world as well. And what we find out is that IOI has already cracked where the third challenge is. So they're going to be here, um, which will be Planet Doom, attempting um, to crack this third challenge, which will be about playing an Atari 2600 game. But they don't know what game, Jacob. And they start to play every game. They get all these IOI guys lined up in the Oasis. And a minute through each game, they fall through the ice and into the water. And then the next person goes up and they try a different game. We do get a cut back to those scholars of Holiday that work for IOI. And there's like a redhead girl we kind of get to know. This is a little weird, I would say, because she's like, follow this character now. Jacob, my first question is this. How do you view the Sixers and how do you view the holiday scholars who work for IOI? Do you view them differently, the same? Do we like them, not like them? I think you're supposed to like the scholars a bit more because they're clearly just like passionate about holiday and they're not like actively out there like hurting people, but they're kind of part of the cog too. But it is weird. Like we definitely got to focus in on the redheaded girl and she's going to kind of like be the one who knows everything with the scholars. And we don't even know her name or anything, but they're all going to be cheering for Wade at the end. So I guess they're pretty cool. Yeah. I, th- I think that it could have been dealt with much better. And in this case, we see, okay, the redheaded girl puts her uh, fingers to her chin, which we all know is the universal sign that she is thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Great performance. Great direction, I should really say, by Spielberg, because come on. and then we're going to get a cut back to the Oasis with a scene um, between Sorrento and Irock. Remember, there is the orb of Asavox. Jacob, what's going on here? Irock finally uh, gives Sorrento the orb, and they're going to activate it, and it creates this shield around this castle that they're working on in planet doom basically to protect themselves as they try to figure out the third challenge we're going to cut back to ioi then uh sorrento comes out of the oasis and wade and dido are there holding their guns to him and they want information about you know where artemis is how they can get her out but it turns out that they're actually still in the oasis so there's kind of like this like inception shit where they make him think they're in the real world in his office but they're actually not Uh, So Wade is going to get a hold of Artemis, and they talk about the shield that's going up. He's going to help Artemis get out of her containment cell by, like, talking her through instructions, and apparently there's just a lever to open up your containment cell inside. That was way too easy to get out. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, she's eventually going to go to Sorrento's office so she can help get the shield down, and in the meantime, she tells Wade to raise an army. Back in Sorrento's office, he figures out that they're tapping his feet, and he's going to escape, and uh, when he leaves, Artemis is going to go to his office and get in his chair. Uh, Sorrento and Finale then go to her containment cell. She's not there, obviously. He tells Finale to find her. And then Artemis is going to get info uh, in Sorrento's chair about how to turn off the orb, basically. And she's going to hide and escape when people walk in eventually and then go down to the war room. And then Wade is going to call for help. So, Carter, why don't you tell us about Wade's rousing speech? Sure. This is going to be uh, Parzival's or Wade's Braveheart moment as he is going to uh, tap into the broadcast, I suppose, across the entire Oasis. Why is he able to do this exactly? 
Uh, I'm just gonna say because Artemis is in Sorrento's chair, so they can do whatever they want, or at least yeah. a part of it. So For, perhaps that's, or maybe because he's number one on the leaderboard, or maybe he bought some dope shit at that store. I don't or, know. Or H is hacking it or something. So yeah, a ways out of that. And in this speech, Parzival or Wade is essentially like, I found something, I found a cause, I found my friends, I found a bunch of bullshit, you know, a bunch of platitudes in which you're like, okay, dude, like, we get it, you're young, you haven't experienced much in life, and you found something that you like, and you have friends for the first time. Ask yourselves, are you willing to zero out for the Oasis? Are you willing to fight? I am Parzival of the High Five. In the name of Artemis, in the name of H, in the name of Daito and Sho. We ask you to join us on Planet Doom. In the name of James Halliday himself, help us save the Oasis. Good for you. All of that to say, um, there's going to be some cutting back, and he's going to come back to this speech later, but I would say that the most effective part is the fact that he says, you know, Sorrento is trying to get this too, and we don't want to lose the Oasis to this douchebag. And everybody, I think that's that's really what's going to convince a lot of people, Jake. Like, yeah, I don't want this douchebag to have it either. Back in uh, Sorrento's office, that's when Sam has to hide. Uh, Wade's speech continues. H activates the Iron Giant. And Wade continues his speech, and he says, Are you willing to zero out for the Oasis? Are you willing to fight? In the name of the High Five, we ask you to join us on Planet Doom. In the name of James Halliday, help us save the Oasis. And you have Parzival standing there in the Oasis. Uh, You've got H as the Iron Giant and the rest of the High Five, save for Artemis. And there's a beat, and they're like, oh, shit, I guess nobody's coming. But, Jacob, that's just a a cinematic trope, of course. There is going to be rumblings, and they're going to turn around, and up the snowy mountain on Planet Doom, we see, I guess, thousands, I would imagine, of avatars who are coming to their aid. Jacob? Did you freeze frame this at all, man? Who who you catch who any of these avatars? I saw the Battletoads up front. Did you see yeah, that? Yeah, Battletoads are there. I mean, there's I like we could go on. There's tons of people. Yeah. For me We're myself, good. you know, uh, the the Master Chiefs from Halo are the most notable one for me as a nerd <laughs> and someone yeah. who grew up playing Halo. So I, I'm trying to imagine if there was a time like if this movie had come out, you know, during when Halo was big, like I probably just would have like loved it so much but i think it'd be cool to you know take this you know take your take your kids to see this movie it'd probably be a, a really cool sequence to show them i'm sure but yeah lots of fun references here in the meantime artemis is pretending to be an ioi soldier in the oasis and she's gonna have this very uh, new hope-esque scene where she's gonna shut down the orb which will destroy the shield uh we also see that the atari group has decided that they need to play the game adventure and then uh, the fight begins in Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it. <laughs> Starts us off. So, uh, like we said, tons of references here. Whatever video game or entertainment you may want, including our solo f bomb when they get attacked by Chucky from Child's Play. Um, Artemis is going to run out as an IOI soldier and uh, help sabotage the equipment. She's going to end up in Wade's car with him and tells him that they're playing adventure. Then Sorrento's going to come out. He's going to spawn Mecha Godzilla. And H is going to have to fight against it in the Iron Giant. And then Dido is also going to come help in a fucking Gundam. And uh, Dido's going to do some major damage, but then uh, gets crushed. And um, then Artemis comes to help H, and they do blow up the Mechagodzilla. 
Uh, Irock's going to blow up the bridge to the castle, and the scene kind of ends with the Iron Giant acting as a bridge across, and they all get across. I should say, show and Wade get across, and the Iron Giant falls into the lava, and we get a nice Terminator 2 reference. Carter, any thoughts about this uh, fight scene? Oh, you're not even going to tell us what the T2 reference is, Jacob? We got the Iron Giant going down a lava with the thumbs up. Best what, part of Terminator what else, 2. What else would, what other <laughs> reference would it be if it wasn't um, the lava? I, I, maybe Linda Hamilton showed up. I don't fucking know, dude. That'd be dope. <laughs> Actually, uh, when Twisted Sister begins playing, it's when uh, Parzival makes a say anything reference by holding up the boombox. But I think it would have been much better if it would have just been the actual song from Say Anything, which is In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. And you just have this like soft serenade and this amazing battle taking place in the background. And you just hear, In Your Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to, We're Not Gonna Take It. Um, I, I think that that would have just played you know really well for the Peter Gabriel fans in the audience, or, or at least for the Say Anything fans. But uh, uh, Jacob, what do you th- what are your thoughts on this battle? I think it's fun. That's all it has to be. You know, it's fun. Cool. Not not too long again. Not too short. I think he nails the the timing with it uh, on this one again. So pretty good. I think the third act as a whole is definitely weaker. I think they rush into the third challenge and they kind of rush through this last part. But um, it's fun, and that's all it has to be for me. Sure, I agree. Uh, as they get across that that chasm um, with the aid of the Iron Giant, you mentioned show. And Parzival, um, Artemis is also going to get across, but in the real world, in the war room, we are going to get Sorrento, after having died by the explosion of Artemis, he is going to be going around looking for Samantha. And he is going and he's taking off helmets of everybody in that war room, so she starts to get worried. So Parzival decides to kill Artemis, and she leaves the game. She leaves the Oasis. She's back at IOI. Jacob, uh, and then she easily just saunters out of IOI without any problems. So <laughs> she goes out into the street, and uh, she is summarily picked up by uh, H and everybody else, the rest of the High Five, in the van. So all five of them are together now in the real world, in the van. But the only two characters really left in the Oasis that are doing much are Sho and Parzival. But he's still got that holy hand grenade. Jacob Parcival or Wade is going to use that holy hand grenade. They're going to destroy the Sixers in front of them. And they're going to make their way up to the Atari machine. He knows they have to play Adventure. Artemis had figured it out as well. Jacob, why is Adventure the game they have to play? Because it's the first video game where the creator put an Easter egg in the game. So, Oh, shit. Easter egg in the game. Easter egg in the Oasis. Makes sense, right? So Wade's going to run up to start playing, but Sorrento and Irock appear. And Sorrento has this giant bomb, the Cataclyst. And Sorrento tries to bribe him again. Wade refuses. And then they kind of have this fight. He knocks the bomb out of Sorrento's hand, kicks him in the dick. And then he lands right by the bomb anyway. What does Sho do during this? Like, he runs know, away dude. and then just doesn't show up again. Like, isn't he supposed to go grab the bomb? That's what I was I don't expecting. Know. I, was, he, was he fighting Irock or something? I don't know. He's 11 years old, bro. I don't know. I guess, but... Here's so, my question. Sorrento's... Yeah avatar was killed well while in the mecha godzilla so how did he get back so soon how does this work exactly he's the fucking ceo man he can do what he wants yeah but not of the oasis just of ioi i don't know anyway there's no way he's just going to commit suicide though right not in the oasis not with this cataclyst right it's all just lip service until what until he uses it (laughs) yeah Yeah, not after not after uh, z uses a hadouken though (laughs) yeah yeah 
Um, so we get a Street Fighter reference. But Jacob, so they're all dead. He kills everybody. Mm-hmm. Self-destructs. Game over. Unless unless what? What happens in a video game? You get an extra life. What? So wait, it, how would he have an extra life? This is ridiculous. <laughs> what is this, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, Jacob? Come on. <laughs> well, he, I don't know. Maybe he's learning to believe in himself just like Scott Pilgrim. So Yeah, man. But, uh, yeah, Wade is still alive because he got an extra life from the museum curator earlier or the library curator earlier. Oh, my so, God, it was the quarter. Oh, my God. Yeah, so <laughs> that seemingly insignificant thing came back. And he gets to find the Easter egg in Adventure, and everyone watches him do it. Uh, in the real world, Finale is on their tail the whole time, and Sorrento is also going to take off to find them in his own vehicle. And they have this pretty nice scene, I think, of... Uh, of Wade beating and like narrating adventure, you know, but you had to find the invisible dot and you take it back to the beginning and it shows the creator's name. And so he successfully did it. Halliday's avatar appears and gives him the key. But in the real world, uh, they're starting to get fucked up by Sorrento and Finale. You know, they're hitting the van and so Wade's getting knocked around inside. Um, but they are going to, you know, fight Finale off. They're going to, you know, kick her out when she tries to jump in. Wade will get all three keys and the lock, and this leads him to a big hall with the Easter egg in it. So, Carter, why don't you take us to the the Easter egg hall? Tell us what happens. Wade enters the hall. Anorak is there waiting for him, and he says, You've done it. You've won. Uh, Just sign this paper, and you'll have complete control over the Oasis. And Wade is very hesitant here. He says, Wait a minute. This is the moment that Halliday forced Morrow out of Gregarious Games. That is the worst mistake of your life, and I'm not going to make the same mistake. And Anorak says, I just needed to make sure. And then they are transported to Holiday's childhood bedroom. Not only do you have Mark Rylance there as the older Holiday, you've got this young kid as a young Holiday playing Atari because, I don't know, he likes it or something. Jacob, he's still going to get com- complete control of the Oasis later, so what is the point of all this? <laughs> Like, why does he say no? Yeah, I think he's... I mean, it's, it's like a Willy Wonka thing, right? To, like, test his character, his, like, constitution. Like, that's what it was for. <laughs> like, is is he really a good person to run the Oasis, I guess, mm-hmm. is it? But the, the major point of this is Halliday's going to say he was scared of people, scared of reality. It was all painful. But in the end, the only place that was actually real is reality. And that's why it's mm-hmm. so good. So... The end of this scene confuses me. I, I can't understand the, the cryptic message happening here, so I actually need your help. Like, Wade asks Halliday if he's an avatar. He says, no. He goes, but is Halliday actually dead? He says, yes. And then so he's like, so what are you? He's just like, thanks for playing my game. See ya. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand. Is, okay. he, is he a memory? Like, what's your yeah. take? My take is that Halliday figured out how to... Uh, complete a synchronicity with a computer, meaning he uploaded his consciousness prior to death, and he is now one with the computer, even though his physical body is dead. Uh, all of his memory and ideas and consciousness are now on a computer, which is a thing uh, that uh, people talk about, and that might happen in the future, you know, because we are human and we'd love to be immortal and our bodies are not, so maybe our minds can be. And in that case, I'd say, cool, holiday rich guy who can do that <laughs> meanwhile a bunch of people are getting blowed up in the stacks yeah um but yeah i think that um, the scene works well as a whole well, what's your take on it yeah i mean i think it's fine 
it's I mean the whole point is the reality thing right where I think Halliday is be, is looking back on everything he's created and this is where I think he's you know definitely a Spielberg proxy here looking back on all the things he's created all the pain it's caused all the pain he was running away from all the the, the changes he's made in the world and he's just like you know at the end like reality is real like where we are is real like take care of the people you're with is kind of the point. So mm-hmm. uh, someone looking back on his creations, which I think is, is very appropriate for Spielberg at this point in his career, you know? Yeah, I agree. Would you call the Oasis a champagne supernova in the sky? Perhaps a Wonderwall? Yeah. <laughs> I, we've, I don't know. It's been a while, and, and nobody's had an actual Oasis reference yet. Yeah, that, that would be our avatars, <laughs> fucking like Noel and Liam Gallagher. <laughs> Just like... Bigger than the goddamn other. Beatles, man. Yeah. So. Uh, all right. Okay. After this, we're going to get this kind of oddly long sequence in the stacks. Um, the real chase comes to a head. Sorrento shows up. The van is there. But they had called ahead. Wade, that is. And he's like, hey, people, the stacks, uh, help us. We're, we're coming. And the people, the stacks, kind of descend to get Sorrento. But he's got a gun that he had taken from a guard. And then we're going to get this kind of weird motif in this last scene where the truck doors keep closing and opening. First, Sorrento goes in. He is mesmerized by the egg, which for some reason we could see in the real world. Did you quite understand why we could see the glow? Is it like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction and shit? Yeah, (laughs) no idea. But anyway, Sorrento will be apprehended by those cops who show up for the first time ever in the movie. And um, they're going to take him, put him in the back of, uh, you know, the the squad car and all of that. <clears throat> and they're going to shut the door. And then what we're going to get is the arrival of Ogden Morrow, I believe. And this is, as you've mentioned before, Simon Pegg. We've seen him in flashbacks, and now this is Simon Pegg in old man makeup. And he shows up and interrupts a kiss, if I'm not mistaken, that is about to happen between wade and samantha and wade's like hey morrow why don't you fuck off for a minute he shuts the door and he's like i'm not gonna be afraid like uh like my hero halliday was afraid and then he um just just takes samantha and uh, plants a plants a wet one right on her jacob and the kiss goes off without a hitch apparently but the van doors reopen and um this time the cops are at the door and they're like, hey, did you do this thing? And H is like, oh, I, that was me. And then H leaves. And then the door shut again. And then the doors open again. <laughs> and now Morrow's there again. He's brought lawyers from Gregarious Games. And this is what I was talking about earlier, where he had refused to sign the original papers. It's like, you've proved your medal. But now Morrow is there with, like, a paper that he wants the signature for. Like, that is that paper, though, right? I mean, what else could it be? Right. But I guess the decision he makes is a good one. Jacob, what does Wade decide to do here? They're going, the high five collectively is going to run it together. And then we have a nice moment between Morrow and Wade, and we figure out that Morrow was the museum curator in the Holiday Journals. So does he just constantly stay <laughs> logged into the <laughs> Oasis? Yeah, I don't know. Like uh, when it was packed earlier on, right. you know, in the first year, was he just like, God damn it. Why do people keep showing up to these journals? I don't want to have to be here the whole time. But yeah, Mara was the curator. So he is the one who gave him that extra life quarter. <laughs> Does he like literally um, have to like wake up and do that as his day job? He's just like, God, <laughs> God damn it. So, yeah. But I mean, yeah, that's he, why he earlier. Money. He's only going to get paid a quarter to stay on this fucking board of the high five anyway, to help with uh, the transition to their ownership of the Oasis. By the way, 
is it really i know he it's like supposed to be altruistic he's like i'm not going to run it by myself i'm going to run it with these five people and it's like it's an oligarchy yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. you could have been like the oasis is everyone's yeah, exactly know? like open source or something yeah. but but yeah i think the uh what wade tells morrow here is that halliday's biggest regret was losing his only friend the oasis was never supposed to be a one player game morrow concludes so I don't know, it's just like like there's so many regrets that Halliday has that are convenient <laughs> to like the time. It's like he regrets not kissing. He regrets not going back in time. He regrets doing this and that. Like it's just like all right. He he regrets a lot of things. Like we get it. <laughs> so yeah. misses I mean, misses he, his friend. He clearly wasn't a, a very good in the real world, which is why he had to create the Oasis, right? Yeah, but I mean that's another point. I mean you mentioned it yourself about him being you know maybe on the spectrum. Um, I didn't dig too much into it. I tried to. I couldn't find a lot. But other people have noted that, and other people have noted it as not not very well handled in that way. Where I don't know, just like the autistic person, like not being made for this world, or like doesn't fit in or something, and like that wasn't handled well. I I, I didn't really get into it, but I just wanted to bring that up as as another criticism of this movie, but one I would need to continue to investigate. That said, let's get into our epilogue. They do sign Morrow to be a consultant. They ban all loyalty centers and they close the Oasis on Tuesday and Thursdays. <laughs> and the last shot is like Artemis and Wade kissing and Wade's like, you know what? Maybe real life isn't so bad after all. <laughs> so like, which is fine. It's a good point, but also like their real world is still fucked. Like they don't like handle that right. at all. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean, um, the stacks are still there, right? We still have uh what appears to be um, a, a wide distribution of, of, of wealth that is um, a, a wealth gap mm-hmm. between a, now the high five, who we can only imagine, um, you know, if they're spitting, splitting half a trillion dollars, Jacob, it's 500 billion. They each got 100 billion, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just like, that's why I say, like, all, overall, like, the themes themselves are, like, good in theory, I just think a lot of them end up being like misguided or not very well handled, so or just not fully fleshed out, you know. At the end of the day, so um, Carter, I do, but you know, we're that's the end of the movie now, and you know, we mentioned the the shining sequence. You mentioned how it was war games in the book. Is it true that Blade Runner was a major part of the book? Yeah, it was war games and Blade Runner were were the two main kind of film scenes. I know that they couldn't do Blade Runner because they were making Blade Runner twenty forty nine at the time, so there's no way that they were going to be able to secure the rights for that. Gotcha. I think The Shining works actually better than Blade Runner would have mm-hmm. um, because, like, if you do a Blade Runner esque scene like you would The Shining, because in the book it's like the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And the book takes place over a much longer period of time, like months at a time go by. Uh, like, what would you have done in Blade Runner? Because, frankly, Blade Runner is not exactly an action-packed flick. Yeah, no, I don't know if it has, like, necessarily iconic scenes either. They just, like, go and, like, it's like the Tears in the Rain speech. Tears in the Rain, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, who the fuck is this guy? Harrison Ford looking sullen in, in, in the dark rain. There are quite a few differences between the book and the the film, I would say that overall the film actually probably does a better job of explaining the stakes. It does condense the timeline, which might lead to the problem of the Artemis Parsifal slash Samantha Wade love story because in the book it it does have quite a bit more time to simmer. Um, but as far as everything else, uh, the challenges, um, all of that, I think that the film actually does probably a better job for that medium. 
Um, if memory serves in the book, what do we get? In the book, we get um, a, a game of real life joust at the beginning of the arcade game. We get Pac-Man, we get War Games, we get Blade Runner, a handful of other, you know, kind of nerdy 80s things. The one thing that the book does have is honestly like, a lot more references that are right in your face because you're reading them. The holiday journals in the book, well, I will say that Wade's grail diary, if you will, a Last Crusade reference, but his uh, his Gunter diary about holiday, uh, he often goes back and reads it. So it's actually pretty fun to read the book. You're just like, oh, yeah. And they talk about this and that. And they talk about, you know, a bunch more, you know, songs, TV shows, films, books from the 1980s that that the movie just really doesn't have time to touch on at all. All right, Jacob, we've, we've touched on a few themes. I think one of the biggest ones, of course, um, when, when we talk about like reality, real things, all of that is um, the internet and social media and the way we live our lives and technology in general. Obviously, much technology is being used to create this film. What is the comment on say, the internet itself in this film? Is it, hey, the internet should be shut down on Tuesdays and Thursdays? <laughs> Would that make for a better world? Not quite. I think the I think the comment is pretty simple. It's basically just like, be careful, be cautious, and also maybe figure out a way to utilize it, right? And in the same way that they're going to gain control of the Oasis and thereby you know shut down IOI, like, can you use this tool that they made against them even or something like that? I don't know. You know, that's a a little extreme, but I I think at its core, it's just a cautionary tale about spending less time on the internet, which we've all been being told for years and years now. Sure. Is the internet good? Oh God. Um, (laughs) I, I, I don't know. Would you rather live in a world with the internet or without the internet? It's so hard to imagine it without, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, I guess you're younger than I am, but I can imagine it. Granted, I was a child, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, ultimately, it probably is a good thing. It has, you know, been used for horrible, horrible things, but ultimately, I'm going to say it has to be just for, you know, information and connection and all that, so... Well, I mean, it's a cautionary tale about that very thing, so we should probably... Um, take stock of of the parallels in our real lives and really understand our use of technology and the internet in general. Obviously, like social media is one of those things that I have uh, shunned at this point. I'm not on it, and I, and I love that. Uh, and, and in this case, we could say, okay, we've got these people with avatars going into this fictional world. Like, that'd be really cool. Like, that's v- video game, but it's very much integrated into this r- real world. Would you like that? Would, uh, here's my question. Would you like the Oasis? Do you think that if we're talking the internet and the natural evolution of this sort of technology, would you like the ability to have access to something like the Oasis? Maybe. I think it would need to at least be at the Oasis level before it's even worth it. It's kind of my, my point of view with a lot of things like self-driving cars. Like, I don't want to be in self-driving cars that, like, require me to, like, stay awake and have active attention. Like, until the whole system is self-driving cars and I can fucking sleep in my car and wake up at my destination, like, I don't really care. That's a little selfish. I don't care. Uh, but, like, I can actually speak to experience from this. Uh, I, I'm actively working right now at work with AR and VR technology, and I think it kind of sucks, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's that cool or fun um i've played a couple vr games i don't think it's that cool or fun it's a neat experience i don't want to become like a norm i don't know i i'm very much a you know you got to sit in the in the middle in a lot of things as far as like a spectrum right um not to say i'm a 
you know, centrist, because <laughs> I'm certainly not. Uh, fuck centrism uh, in that regard. But like, uh, you have to have tempered expectations and tempered behaviors. You know, you don't want to spend every moment of your waking life on the internet, but you don't also have to spend no time on it and become you know ignorant to stuff. So that's all I want to say to that. So just shut it down Tuesdays and Thursdays. Got it. <laughs> Jacob, uh, we do have music in this movie. Uh, much of the music in this film are, are needle drops from the 80s, but we have a composer not by the name of John Williams, but instead by the name of Alan Silvestri. John Williams uh, was planning on doing Ready Player One, but he had chose instead to do the post for Spielberg, and he simply did not have the time to do both. Alan Silvestri comes on board, which is apropos because he was the composer of Back to the Future. So when we get the Back to the Future uh, theme in this film a couple of times, uh, that is going to be the same composer. Cinematography, though, is Janusz Kaminski, as it has been for every Spielberg film since Schindler's List. Ready Player One was released on March 29th, 2018. The budget, pretty big here, Jacob, about $175 million. It only grossed $137 million domestically. However, it did gross $583 million worldwide. It was a financial success. It surely made money. And it was received positively, and it it currently uh, holds a 72% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It was actually nominated for one Academy Award. What do you think it was nominated for? Visual effects? It was. What did it lose to? In 2017? Well, 2018 was the release year. Oh, was it really? Mm-hmm. March wow. 2018. I literally just said it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't listening. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, 2018, uh, First Man? Yeah, indeed. It was First Man. Yeah. Um, so we, we just uh, crossed that milestone of the 50th, 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon, if you believe such nonsense happened. <laughs> Kubrick, <laughs> Kubrick's your question. Yeah, you know, exactly. what The Shining's about? And the Shining, man. We got Apollo references, Room 237. Yeah. Guys, everybody, if you haven't seen Room 237, the quote-unquote documentary about The Shining, make sure you watch it because it's full of a bunch of really good bullshit. <laughs> God, that, that movie is like seriously ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, did you guys know this this and this. I was like, I mean, anybody can make connections about anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At any rate, yes, it was nominated and lost its one Academy Award to First Man, which I guess won because it was a pretty good movie that people thought was going to be different than what it ended up being, and they're like, throw out the Visual Effects Award. It's usually what happens <laughs> Yeah. in cases of First Man. Uh, have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. They decided it on HBO, actually, so I'll watch it soon. Yeah. Nice. Big Damien Chazelle fan over here and doesn't want to support him, but he's going to end up watching that, I guess. Uh, Jacob, I, I only have one question for you then, and that is uh, how many stars are you going to give this movie out of five? I gave it four stars when I first watched it. I'm going to take it down just half a star. I'm going to give it three and a half. I still really like it. I, I still think Spielberg directs the shit out of this. This would have been a hell of a movie to try to direct and keep balanced. I really don't think they ever go overboard on references or 80s porn, as so many people want to call it. I think they dial that in really well. I've said my piece about my problems with the main relationship in this movie and the lack of themes that I think that get carried through. Uh, But at the end of the day, I I said it in my initial review when I first reviewed this, like, 
it's clear that Spielberg cares about creators. He cares about the people who are, are playing games, watching movies, you know, living life in the stacks, the slums, wherever it may be. Like he clearly cares uh, about all these people, and that's what I really appreciate about it and Spielberg. So, gonna go with a, a solid three and a half out of five. I think that feels uh, really comfortable for me for a rating. I give it four upon its initial release. I'm going to stick with that because I like it. And uh, this is one of those movies that is just fun. Uh, it's well made. It's not perfect, but it's, it's good enough. And, and I would recommend that if you like such things, um, but, I don't know, like entertainment and things like that, then <laughs> you should watch this film. People like entertaining <laughs> things. They surely aren't listening to Lights to Low. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, in that case, uh, this is going to be, Jacob, a solemn affair because this is our last episode on Steven Spielberg, except we are going to have a wrap-up episode in which we will cover all of his films once again very briefly. As we go through them, we're going to kind of do some awards and talk about what we think his best movie is, best performances, etc. So, We do hope that you will join us one more time to talk Steven Spielberg. But for this week on Lights to Low, I'm your host, Carter Ringle, along here with... I'm Jacob Willinger. We hope you'll turn the Lights to Low next week for a Spielberg wrap-up episode. Mm